A quick note, this is a 10-part chronological docuseries. We recommend starting at Chapter 1. And for the best immersive listening experience, headphones are suggested. During the Vietnam War, hundreds of American aviators were shot down, imprisoned, and tortured for as many as eight long years. Exactly 50 years ago, the Nixon administration saved 591 of those prisoners of war from captivity. Many of them are still with us and willing to tell their stories like never before, alongside newly surfaced recordings from the Johnson and Nixon presidencies. This is the premier podcast from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in partnership with Foundwave Productions and created in honor of Ross Perot Sr. Additional support comes from In-N-Out Burger, proud to support veterans and their families. This is Captured, shot down in Vietnam. By now, you know the unimaginable conditions the POWs endured in North Vietnamese captivity. Each day was a new death-defying battle, physically from the torture inflicted by their captors, and mentally in terms of the willpower it took to continue to survive without knowing much of anything that was going on outside the prison walls. Thousands of men were dying. The families of POWs, although not enduring physical torture, were surviving a torture of their own. The torture of not knowing what was happening to their patriarchs or whether they were alive at all. In this episode, we will focus on the wives and kids of Captain Red McDaniel and Commander Everett Alvarez. We'll hear about their communications or lack thereof and how it affected the minds and hearts of all of them more than 8,000 miles apart. I can recall a lot about those days. That again is Mike McDaniel, Red's son. Before he went off to Vietnam, Mike thought his dad was invincible. Their family was living on top of the world. A great military career, an idyllic early childhood. But then, of course, everything changed for him at the age of nine. Now, 50 years later, Mike remembers those days like they were yesterday. Coming home, it was a Friday afternoon. It was a beautiful day, and I remember coming after school, walking through the backyard and seeing the cars lined up in front of the house and in the driveway. Mrs. Miles, uh, who's the mother of Gary Larry Miles, the wife of a fellow squatter member, you know, swooped me up and said, hey, you're going to come home with me. We're going we're gonna to spend the night with Gary Larry, which was a treat because they were two good friends of mine. I remember she stopped at a High's ice cream store on the way home. And that was kind of candy mecca for a kid. You know, they had these big rows and rows of candies. And she said, Michael, get whatever you want, as much as you want. And I was like, okay, something's not right here. Red flag. So I, uh, I took advantage of the situation. I stuffed my arms as much as I could and kept looking at her to see if I had met the threshold. And, and there's these big, long bubblegum things called Big Buddies. And I wanted to get the most of it. So I stuffed that whole thing in my mouth on the way home. Ms. Miles walked me up to the door. My mom meets me at the door, and she said, Michael, let's go back to your room. I need, uh, I need to talk to you. And again, I'm still not thinking there's anything big deal, but something's up. She sits me down, 
on the bed and I could tell you exactly where I was sitting, where she was. And she said, let me hold your bubble gum because what I'm going to tell you is going to make you cry. And then she told me that he had been shot down over the jungles of North Vietnam and that he was evading and that they were going to go in that afternoon to rescue him. And that was the last word we heard for the next three years. Three years of not knowing whether his dad was alive, no way to communicate, and nobody to ask. It definitely was a growing up factor right away. I remember the day I saw my son when he was nine, and then my grandson, who, who that was just about a year ago, turned nine. And I remember going in there and looking at that little guy on that bed, thinking that was me all those years ago. And both those times have been very a profound thought, you know, of, you know, I, I don't know how I could cope with all that being where this little guy is right now. And I remember the Navy telling us, don't tell people that your dad's been shot down. Don't tell family members, don't tell your friends. And how do you do that? You know, I'm not sure what that was all about, but that was, that was impossible. The grunts don't seem to understand that they're holding content because of a Pentagon decision. The Pentagon gives orders to the generals, and the generals give order to the colonels, and so on, and all the orders are obeyed. The Department of Defense didn't want families of MIA or POW servicemen to talk about their situations. One, they probably didn't want to cause further alarm among the American public. And two, they didn't want the North Vietnamese gaining any intel on these men's families. Here is Captain Red McDaniel again on what he knew of that. They just wouldn't wouldn't tell the world that they had us because they they uh, they felt that would have some impact on ending the war, I suppose. As we know, though, the word would get out. In fact, the Vietnam prisoner of war crisis would become one of the only unifying ideas among the American public during the course of the war. Everyone could agree no matter on their stance of whether we should be in North Vietnam in the first place, that these men deserved to come home. For President Nixon, the POW issue would become a major focus and a central part of his eventual peace negotiations. Insofar as the treatment of prisoners is concerned, it would probably uh, not be inaccurate to say uh, that the record in this war is one of the most unconscionable in the history of warfare. And there have been, of course, some very uh, bad examples in past wars, as we know. Apart from reaching an overall settlement of the war, this, uh, this government will do everything that it possibly can to separate out the prisoner issue and have it handled as it should be uh, as a separate issue on a humane basis. So here you are at nine years old and everything kind of turns upside down. You try to picture your dad in the jungle of North Vietnam, evading and you know trying to become rescued and and not knowing. And even at nine, you you wanted to wishful think that your dad's gonna be okay, but you also don't want it to be sugar-coated. One thing I remember vividly is when Nick Carpenter, 
who was Lieutenant JG, who was flying wingman the day my dad was shot down. When the squadron returned, he came over to the house, got on his knees in front of my brother and I, and told us the whole story of the shootdown. All the graphic, the details. And that was something we were hungry to learn about. I so appreciated him doing that. It was just wonderful to kind of visualize what had happened that day during the shootdown. And then the next year, they went back on uh, deployment, and Nick Carpenter was blown up in the sky. And I can remember this vividly, trying to grapple with, um, you know, I need to be able to accept that he's not alive. But at the same time, I don't want to jinx it by, you know, saying he's, he's not alive. Didn't want to lose hope, but I didn't want to have false hope. It was just kind of an odd thing to deal with. And that was, that was tough. That was tough. That was the first three years. Of course, it wasn't just tough on Mike. It was nearly impossible for his mom and Red's wife, Dorothy McDaniel. Mike talks further about what he remembers of her at the time. She was a stalwart. She was amazing. You know, here we are, three little bratty kids, you know. When's Dad trying to get her to answer the question that she's not able to answer? She would become part of the League of Wives, an important organization that galvanized public support and visibility of the plight of POWs and their families, which we'll cover more deeply in a coming episode. Dorothy is still living and her and Red are still married, but she was unable to interview for this production. We had a lot of support from family, a lot of support from the community. Um, the other wives, the other family members in the squadron, there was a lot of anti-war uh, activity with, you remember, the Jane Fondas and the Donner Sutherlands. And, um, and they would go over to Vietnam on these trips and they would try to talk to prisoners and they would visit the POW camps as well as the, the things you've seen in, the, in history. Public speeches from high-profile anti-war activists like Jane Fonda did harm to the POWs. She fabricated and under-exaggerated their conditions, participating in North Vietnamese propaganda. It was damaging to POW morale, to say the least. The fact that they rescue the American pilots and that these pilots are well treated and cared for and operated on, I find miraculous. And I think that it is an indication of the quality of human beings that there are in Vietnam. But they would uh, come back with footage and pictures of the prisoners. Anytime that would happen, we would go down to Naval Intelligence at Oceana Naval Air Station, and we would go through those pictures and that footage over and over and over again, trying to find this six foot three scrapping guy in a crowd. And you wanted to find him, but you didn't want to think it was him if it wasn't him. It was this nightmare because you, you would go through all the pictures and you hadn't found him yet. And it's like, no, let's go through them again. Let's run that film backwards and forwards, see if he's in the crowd somewhere. And that was just a real nightmare. You know, it was just kind of like, come on. The nightmare of not knowing Red's status would end. But a new struggle, after finding out, would begin. After three and a half years of captivity, my name was released as a POW. It was the day of the, the solar eclipse, and that was a big deal. And on the front page of the Norfolk paper, 
entire front page is a solar eclipse. Down in the bottom right is a picture of Red McDaniel. I was a pretty good little basketball player back in the day. And we were in a championship game. My mom calls about 8 o'clock in the morning. And she said, I have some great news. And she says, Michael, a list came out last night with 14 names of men being held captive, officially being held as prisoners of war. Your dad's name's on it. And that was like the weight of the world. I mean, I still get chills as I just mentioned that. I can just remember that moment of, he's alive. Now we, now we know that he's alive. I just didn't have a care in the world. And I can't remember what, I think I played terrible in the game. I think we lost the championship game, but I could not give a rip. I mean, it was just wonderful that here this, this day was that you've been hoping for and praying for, and your dad's alive. So then it was, okay, let's watch, let's really start paying attention now and watch the news. Let's get this war over with so my dad can come home. Good evening. In Vietnam, American airmen, Air Force, Navy, and Marine flew 145 missions over North Vietnam today in the second biggest raid of 1967. Hanoi claims its gunners shot down two American planes and captured one pilot. No confirmation on that from the American authorities. Do you remember having a stance on the war? Again, we were in a very pro-military town, but there was so much anti-war activity in the, on the news, and the media was, you know, exacerbating that. And, you know, the division in the country and the whole anti-war movement. President of the United States said nothing you young kids would do would have any effect on him. Well, I suggest to the President of the United States, if he want to know how much effect you youngsters can have on the President, he should make one long-distance phone call to the LBJ Ranch and ask that boy how much effect you can have. Do not let them scare you into silence. Tragically, our nation's leadership, while striving for peace, has adopted a course that makes real peace unlikely. As we look at America, we see cities enveloped in smoke and flame. We hear sirens in the night. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. So it was very confusing time, too. It's like, okay, well, let's just stop it. Let's just get it over with. Meanwhile, in D.C., President Nixon and National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger were strategizing the best way to negotiate the prisoner's release. Here's one of their Oval Office recordings on the topic. In case you're unaware, all of President Nixon's tapes were voice-activated. It was the first time that technology was available to a president. Otherwise, we'd probably have a lot more LBJ, JFK, and others' recordings. But anytime somebody spoke in Nixon's Oval Office, it was recorded. That means the quality isn't always the best since people were different distances from the microphone. Listening with headphones can help make it out. So we'll play this a bit and then speak over it to tell you what they're both saying. Kissinger says that perhaps as a last-ditch effort, the North Vietnamese will offer the prisoners of war in exchange for a withdrawal. He says that's a deal we'd probably have to take. And Nixon says, I'd take it today. I'd take it November, December, January, any time. 
that's the deal we'd have to take. It was kind of a sit-and-wait game type thing. For now, there was no deal. The POWs would starve, be tortured, and wait. Wrote my first letter home, I think, uh, probably December 1969. I was able to write a six-line letter. Remember, Red was shot down in May of 1967, two and a half years earlier. In all that time, his family didn't know his condition, and Red didn't have the capability of telling them. That letter would change everything. I remember the night we got our first letter. The local mailman, so he shows up at the front door at 10 o'clock at night, and he knocks, rings the doorbell, and my mom goes to the door, and he's standing there with his hands just shaking, holding this letter. And, you know, there was, you know, there it was, you know, something in my dad's own handwriting, the letter to the family. So it was, it was amazing. It was an amazing moment. And I know Talk she... Oh, it's just wonderful. I mean, his handwriting and, you know, it was actually him. And six lines just basically was, uh, I'm, I'm, in go I'm okay, no serious injuries. Dearest Dorothy, Michael, David, Leslie, my health is good in all respects, no permanent injuries. You are my inspiration. Children, work, study, play hard. Help each other and mommy be strong for our reunion. I love you deeply, Eugene. Dated 15 December, 1969. Some eight months later, I think in 1970, she got that letter. She was allowed to write me about the same time. And that was a big relief to my family, seeing the letter that I had written home. There's no real rhyme or reason as far as why the North Vietnamese would let some letters through and some letters not. Some men would write and receive letters quite frequently. Others, like Red, would have to wait years to even be allowed to write his first letter, and then eight-plus more months to receive the reply. Later on, as the end of the war got closer, it was easier for communication to get through. But in those uncertain years, neither party could be sure the other was receiving their communication. We had a a black there named Norm McDaniel, who was getting mail, I was not, and he went up to get his letter, and it was from my wife. And he read the letter and came back and communicated down through the walls to me that I saw this letter from your wife, and it took me six months to get the enemy to show me that letter that he had seen, so... One of the first letters I got was from my daughter, Leslie, who was four when I left. She says, Dad, I hope you were having a, a nice time because we're having a very nice time. How did that make you feel? It did. I got a, I got a, a boost out of it. At the same time, Commander Everett Alvarez was in a neighboring POW camp. His main source of hope was also tied to his loved ones back home, namely his wife, Tangi. Everett and Tangi had only married five months before he got shipped off to Vietnam. Despite their communication also being few and far between, Everett's heart remained at home with her. But that would also change. I developed a dream. It was, she was my dream. 
And, and, uh, and of course, years later, that dream was shattered. I hadn't heard from her. Um, I was getting mail occasionally from home, but it was my, my mother, my parents, my family. Uh, something happened, and I knew I didn't know what. And I didn't believe, you know, I thought maybe she got sick, maybe she died, maybe she was in an accident. I didn't know. And, you know, felt that she would wait forever. She was close to her family, and uh, it was a culture, and, and, and women waited. And, and so, um, so I finally wrote, and I said, okay, you know, I want to know what's going on, what happened. And of course, you, get, uh, you write, and six months later, you get a little response, like a postcard type of, of, a, of a correspondence. Um, and I, then my mother, you know, they were holding off, and then it was right after Christmas of 71 that she wrote and told me she didn't, that Tangie had not waited, uh, and that nobody has seen her. And I'm thinking, what? And it wasn't so I, I wrote back to her, and then she, she, uh, she, her next letter was that uh, she had remarried. And that just, I mean, the combination of the two. First, it was the first one was a suspense. And, uh, you know, it, it made the matters worse because I didn't, still didn't know. And the second one was that uh, she had remarried and was gone and, and broke, just broke my, my uh, the dream. My dream wasn't real, but it helped me. And uh, thank God I had, you know, guys like Jerry Coffey and Dave who, you know, just, you know, I was despondent. I really went down. But they, they, they walked with me and they talked to me and they kept me going. And, and it took months before I came out of that. But as time evolved, you know, you, you, know, it's, you, started looking, you started living again. And these guys really helped me through that period. I was uh, kind of the perennial optimist there. Up until the moment of shoot-down, I was macho man, you know, Top Gun pilot, uh, on top of the world, had no other needs. But boy, when you lose it all in one split second, freedom, family, health, it's, it's a big shock. The one thing the enemy can't take from you is your faith. They can destroy everything else, but your faith lives on. I had absolute blind faith that someday my country's coming to get me. In fact, guys were always tapping down the wall to me, red when we would go home, and I was always saying two months. Time and time again, two months. Well, in six years, I lost a lot of credibility, but that's what they wanted to hear. We kind of picked up the pieces and began to build a new life. For me, it was, uh, it was my faith, uh, optimism, uh, trying to pop the soldier, my sailmates up. We don't want to go home two months. And uh, they like to hear that. Did it ever diminish your faith, your optimism? Not really. Uh, it, it, I'm sure it did, but I, ha- I had to maintain a, a strong front because uh, after my torture session in 1969, I was asked by the senior officer if I would serve as chaplain, and I served as chaplain then, and so I had a responsibility to be strong. 
to, to become optimistic again about myself, my future, and, you know, realization that, okay, I was going to be living and I was going to go out and do something else. But I just never gave up, you know, I, again, two months, two months. Had I taken 2,118 days in one fell swoop, I'm not sure I could have handled it. I had to take them one day at a time. And the way I did that was uh, just giving it to God and say, God, it's all yours to do whatever you want with it. I never doubted that would be coming home someday. North Vietnam wishes to negotiate with the United States. They will have to recognize that time is running out. With the exception of the prisoner of war issue, if North Vietnam continues to refuse to discuss our peace proposals, they will soon find they have no choice but to negotiate only with the South Vietnamese. Our eventual goal is a total withdrawal of all outside forces. But as long as North Vietnam continues to hold a single American prisoner, we shall have forces in South Vietnam. The American prisoners of war will not be forgotten by their government. Captured, Shot Down in Vietnam is a docu-series from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Foundation. Produced by the team at Foundwave and respectfully created in honor of Ross Perot Sr. If you're interested in learning more about Vietnam POWs, you can visit the exhibition Captured at the Nixon Library in Yorba Linda, California. Original music compositions, Foley effects, and mastering from Jonathan Rock. Produced and edited by Steph Weaver Weinberg. Research, background, and history from Jason Schwartz. Executive production from Joe Lopez and the team at the Richard Nixon Foundation and Kaylee Mason from Perot Family Collections. Co-executive production, interviewing, and hosting from me, Tyler Russell McCusker. Find future episodes of this show and bonus content, including archival photos and audio, at CapturedPodcast.com. If you enjoyed our production, please consider leaving a review and clicking follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.